0: Let there be light. It was kind of slow, didn't it? (laughs) Open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 9. We're going to begin our study of the accent on the word begin. What I think is probably the, if not the greatest, one of the greatest prophecies in the Old Testament. And this is the prophecy of Daniel about the 77s or the 70 weeks. And it is really an all-encompassing prophecy. And we're just going to begin to scratch the surface uh, this morning. You recall that Daniel moved by what he read in Jeremiah about the exile of the Jews to Babylon and the extent of that exile, which would be 70 years. In his own mind, roughly calculating that he was among the very first to be taken to Babylon from Jerusalem when he was a young boy. Now he's in his 80s. So he's realizing that the 70-year captivity is just about up. And uh, he wants assurance of the the word through Jeremiah that God would, in fact, uh, forgive his people and restore them. And so he prays this prayer, confessing his sins and the sins of the people, acknowledging that and imploring God uh, to, in fact, fulfill his word, to forgive the Jews and to restore them and to restore, eventually, uh, the temple and the city itself. And as he prays that prayer... When you look when you look at the prayer, and especially the, the last verse, verse 19, you get the impression that he's completed this prayer and this plea uh, for God to hear the prayer and for God to forgive his people without delay. So there's this great sense of urgency uh, that Daniel experiences. And as he continues to pray, he is interrupted in his prayer. How rude, huh? But I just want you to read with me, beginning at verse 20. Just read the text, remind ourselves of the text, and then we'll begin to parse it. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill. That's a reference to Jerusalem, the holy hill. He says, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, and that would be in chapter 8, He came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I've now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, an answer was given, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the message and understand the vision. Seventy-sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know and understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the sixty-two sevens, the anointed one will be cut off. And will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. But in the middle of that seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. The one who causes desolation will place abominations on a wing of the temple until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. So Daniel prays this prayer. And as he's still in this, apparently in this prayerful mindset, this, this attitude of prayer, uh, very, very possibly continuing to appeal to God to answer that prayer, he is suddenly interrupted by Gabriel. And Gabriel is described as a man. He's a, clearly an angel it, taking on the appearance of a man And uh, it's the same angel, the same being that he had seen in chapter 8, interpret the vision of chapter 8. Now again, remember that uh, Daniel's prayer for forgiveness and restoration uh, was motivated by reading Jeremiah, and Jeremiah's prophecy uh, of the exile in Babylon that would last for 70 years. You find that in Jeremiah chapter 25. Now Gabriel's answer to Daniel is more than just a simple answer to his prayer. Gabriel's answer is an interpretation. It's an interpretation of Jeremiah's prophecy of that 70-year exile in a way that extends the scope of the prophecy. And so Gabriel is going to give Daniel, in effect, more than he is asking for here. Gabriel indicates that the 70 years point to 77s, or more literally, 70 weeks, which are regarded as 70 weeks of years. And therefore, they would be an amplification. 70 weeks of years would be an amplification, would be expanding the the scope of of the simple 70-year of Jeremiah. Do you, are, you, are you tracking with me here? This is, this is a very, very important key thing. You don't get that. All right, ask Susie. She'll explain it to you later. <laughs> these 77s translate, these 70 weeks of years, translate to 490 years. And this is the scope of this prophecy, from verse 24 through verse 27, the end of the chapter, is going to encompass this 490 years. And we're going to just take one verse at a time. We're going to look at more detail at verse 24 this morning. But here's Daniel. Daniel is praying, and he's in his mind, he's thinking simply about 70 years. It's coming to a close. There's going to be restoration. And in in the answer to his prayer, Gabriel comes and says, I want you to understand this vision. We've come to give you insight and understanding. And God is going to expand, use as the basis of the 70 years, and expand and show through Daniel, to Daniel, the scope of his, his great and immense plan, in effect, the gospel. The gospel. Now, the 70 years of exile, the 70 years of captivity in Babylon, were the specific penalty for violating seventy sabbatic years, now a sabbatic year was this. The, the idea in the in the in the in the Mosaic Law. You see, in the book of Leviticus, in chapter twenty six, in the Mosaic Law, God had commanded Israel that for six years they were to farm their land, and then every seventh year the land was to lie fallow. It was to it was to just not be not be uh, um, um, cultivated planted harvested so one year out of the seven was to be a sabbatic year it was to be to give the land a sabbatical rest like you and I we work six days we rest one right? God worked six days he rested on the seventh. So the sabbatic principle is very, very important. Uh, he knows because he's made us he knows that we need rest right? And we all know people who work seven days a week, 24/7 practically and uh, that is, Absolutely contrary to God's design. They are sinning, being disobedient. And so the Israelites also did this. They did not give the land its sabbatic rest. And so God is going to judge them. And really, the the whole principle of Sabbath speaks to your trust in God. Am I going to take matters into my own hands? Am I going to do my own thing? Am I going to lean on my own understanding? Or am I going to trust God? It's a simple principle. It's trusting God. The Israelites, can they they trust God for one whole year where they wouldn't cultivate the ground? Can they trust that God would provide? Can we trust God that he will provide for our life? So it's not just the Sabbath. It speaks of a much greater dynamic simply of trusting God, believing and obeying him. And so, this seventy years of exile was the penalty for 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 seventy years violating the sabbatic principle for seventy years, and that seventy years would be or seventy weeks of years in effect uh, would be a total of four hundred ninety years. So for four hundred ninety years, apparently, Israel did not observe the sabbatic law for their land, and in those four hundred ninety years, Israel had violated this these these years, in exactly 70 sabbatic years. So therefore, they would go into captivity then for 70 years. You see the equivalency there? And again, let me turn your attention to Leviticus chapter 26. God says, I will scatter you among the nations and will draw out my sword and pursue you. That's graphic, isn't it? You want God drawing out his sword and pursuing you. He says, your land will be laid waste and your cities will lie in ruins. Then the land will enjoy its Sabbath years all the time that it lies desolate and you are in the country of your enemies. Then the land will rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. All the time that it lies desolate, the land will have the rest it did not have during the Sabbaths you lived in it. So clearly God is pointing out to them they violated a very, very, very important principle. And in violating that principle, they really had been violating all of God's law. They had revolted and rebelled against God. And this is the one signal area that God points out that characterizes their overall rebellion, sin, transgression, and all of that. Okay? In Jeremiah chapter 25... Again, Jeremiah signals that this captivity will be for 70 years. He says, verse 11, This whole country will become a desolate wasteland, and these nations will serve the kings of Babylon 70 years. So through Jeremiah, the penalty is specifically spelled out, 70 years. In Second Chronicles, uh, chapter 36, listen to this. The chronicler says, The land enjoyed its Sabbath rest, All the time of its desolation, it rested until the 70 years were completed in fulfillment of the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. It's very easy to diminish uh, some commands of God. And there's a lot of people today who who don't observe a Sabbath. They think, well, that's Old Testament and and we're not under the law, and so we don't observe a Sabbath. Uh, You have to understand this is a very significant principle. God means for us to rest. God means for us to take a day, and and I typically characterize the Sabbath as a day to pray and a day to play. Because you rest in both those dynamics, don't you? You rest from your labor, you rest from the the things that that, uh, uh, cause anxiety and grief. Why? Because you pray. You turn those things, you cast your cares upon the Lord, and you thereby experience rest. And as you play... You do things that, that you wouldn't normally do. You, you take a walk. You enjoy company. You, 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 you do something that's playful. Because what? it gives you rest from the routine and from the, the difficulties and trials of life. It's refreshing, if you will. So the Sabbath is a very, very important principle. And uh, it is a signal of far greater realities uh, that the Jews and people today ignore. Now, Gabriel told Daniel that the purpose of his coming was to give insight and understanding to Daniel. God means for us to have insight and understanding. Would you agree? If you look at at Colossians chapter 1, Paul prays for the Colossian church that they might have uh, wisdom, spiritual insight, understanding, knowledge of God's will. It's very, very important that we have Insight and understanding. This is why we read the Bible. This is why we study the Bible, because we want to know what God's Word is. We want to have insight into who He is and what His purpose and plan is. And although Daniel's prayer was not directed, when Daniel prays, his prayer from his vantage point is not necessarily directed to his own need of understanding uh, of God's dealings with His people, Israel. But the underlying assumption, that's the underlying assumption of the entire prayer. Although Daniel is not quite uh, in touch with that whole concept. God wants to assure Daniel of his unswerving purpose to fulfill all his commitments to Israel. There's a whole school of thought that says that Israel uh, is a non-entity anymore. It doesn't count in God's economy of things. That the church has replaced Israel. Israel. I'm not necessarily believing that. I believe that God has commitments that he's made in the word through all the prophets and promises to Israel that are yet remain unfulfilled. And uh, I believe that in this text, God is assuring Daniel that he is purposing to fulfill all his commitments to Israel, including their ultimate restoration. Now, Gabriel had come to show Daniel what was necessary to understand the entire matter of Israel's program, and specifically to consider the vision of the 70 weeks. Gabriel says, in effect, to Daniel, 70, the 70 years of Jeremiah that you're concerned with, that you're focused on, those 70 years, meant really, are meant to be interpreted as 77s or 70 weeks of years, or 490 years. Now, there are different schools of thought, and we're going to examine these schools of thought as we work our way through this passage uh, in the next several weeks. Several schools of thought, the 490 years. When did they start and when did they end? And then you look at the, at the weeks, the, the 60, 62 weeks, the 7 weeks, the, the 69 weeks, the 70th week is there, there's a, there's a huge school of thought that says the, the 70th, the 69th and 70th week followed each other right on. That's called the preterist view. There's a futurist view that says there's a huge gap of time between the 69th week and the 70th week. We're going to explore those interpretations uh, because they determine how you view your life and how you view your future as a Christian and what you do. They have tremendous implications so we'll be looking at those things in the future. So Gabriel began to speak not about the return so much of Israel from Babylon, but he began to describe to Daniel a much more far-distant series of events. And Daniel, he, he had to be experiencing some measure of confusion. He's praying about 70 weeks. He knows that they're supposed to be delivered from Babylon. Jeremiah, he was reading that. And so he's anxious and focused on the near events. And now here comes Gabriel along, and Gabriel says, "Well, I want to point you into the future. I want to tell you about greater things than just, if you will, uh, coming across the desert and rebuilding Jerusalem." In fact, three times, in these short words that Gabriel brought to Daniel, three times he speaks of the end in verse 24 and verse 26. In these last four verses of Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, we have, I believe, one of the most important prophecies in the Old Testament. It is one of the most encompassing prophecies that we have in the Old Testament. The prophecy as a whole is presented in verse 24. And we're going to look at that this morning. So the whole prophecy is encompassed in verse 24. The first 69 sevens is described in verse 25. The events between the 69th seventh and the 70th seventh are detailed in verse 26. And then the final period of the 70th seventh is described in verse 27. So we're going to Take our time and go through those verses and look at each of these segments of time that Gabriel describes. So God has a God has a he's saying God has a prophetic timetable. He has a series of events that go well beyond uh, Daniel's understanding and Daniel's time frame. And this prophetic timetable is declared by Gabriel to be determined, or in the NIV translation it is declared to be decreed. Verse 24. This is decreed. God has decreed these events. God has decreed these things that are going to happen. And this, of course, involves the assumption of a comprehensive plan of God in which future events are rendered absolutely certain and conceived of as part of an overall plan which is being executed by God himself. In other words, God has this plan, And it's going to encompass all time. And this is the first time he's unveiling it in this comprehensive manner. And he's doing so to Daniel. Remember, because Daniel is what? Highly esteemed. And Daniel is placed at a strategic point in history with respect to Israel. And Israel is always key to God in his events. And so it's logical that he would present this then to Daniel. Notice a very, very important aspect of the prophecy given at the beginning, is that the period of time in question, these 70 weeks, relate to and here's what Gabriel says to Daniel, "This period of time relate to your people and your holy city." This is how Daniel Daniel claims the Jews to be his people. He, he claims the city to be his city. Not in a selfish way, but because he so identifies with the Jews, he so identifies with Jerusalem and all of this. And you read that, you read his personal identification in the, in the prayer that he prays. See, even in ruins, when Jerusalem, even though Jerusalem lies in ruins at this point in history, that city was set apart in God's heart. Daniel acknowledges, if you just go back to verse 20 of, of chapter 9, and, and Daniel talks about your holy hill. This, we, Daniel says, I know that this is a special, special city to you. And Daniel shared that very love uh, for Jerusalem, which was central in God's program for his kingdom, both in the past and in the future. And there's lots of confusion, I think, about What part does Jerusalem play? What part do the Jews play in God's overall economy of things? We're going to try to address that and gain some measure of understanding. Now, the prophecies of Daniel's chapter 2, chapter 7, and chapter 8, those prophecies have dealt primarily with the Gentiles. Now, in Daniel chapter 9, God specifically begins to identify his program for Israel. Now, this would be I think this is how Daniel would interpret it. Daniel is praying about the Jews. He's praying about Jerusalem. He's praying about God forgiving his people. So Daniel is being very specific. The angel comes and responds and gives him an answer to his prayer, albeit it's an expansive answer. It's still an answer that Daniel would, would, would certainly interpret as having to deal with, with the Jews and with Israel. Now, I'm saying this because there are many, many people who equate, will equate this passage in some fashion, some manner, with the church. There's, there's a whole school of thought that says that the church has replaced Israel in God's economy of things. I'm not convinced that that's actually true. I think there's some room for, for some conversation in that area. So we're going to, again, talk about that a little bit. But to make this passage and to make this prophecy equivalent to the church, which would be certainly composed of both Jews and Gentiles, uh, I think is to read into the passage something foreign to the whole thinking and understanding of Daniel. Daniel is praying about the Jews, isn't he? And so it would be logical then for for the Gabriel and God to speak through Gabriel to him about the very thing that he's praying for. I want to give you the whole comprehensive plan, God is saying to Daniel, about Israel, about the Jews, about all the promises that I've made to them and about their respective uh, um, restoration. I want to suggest that the church has no such relation to the city as is being described here or to the promises given that specifically to Israel. I believe that God has made specific promises to Israel that the church does not appropriate wholesale, and and Israel is then out of the picture, and particularly relating to their restoration and the reposition of the land. Daniel has prayed for forgiveness. He has prayed for restoration, and Gabriel communicated God's answer by reinterpreting the 70 years as 77s. So God's plan is going to encompass a much larger span of time. During the 77s, these 70 weeks of years, these 490 years, there are going to be six aspects to God's program for his people. Six important purposes of God will be accomplished. The first three, are concerned with the problem which troubled Daniel in his prayer. And the problem that troubled Daniel, remember, is the fact that there are no sacrifices being offered. There's no possibility of a sacrifice. So how could God forgive his people? How is forgiveness going to be affected? We began to look at that last time. And the the second three uh, uh, aspects of God's program are concerned now with a positive fulfillment of God's righteous purposes. So let's let's look at those six purposes of God. The first one, in verse 24, the finishing of transgression. What does that mean? Well, it can mean a lot of things, but let's get a little bit technical. The expression to finish means clearly, I think, to bring to an end. But what is going to be brought to an end? Transgression. What is transgression? The Hebrew word in the text that's translated by the English word transgression means revolt or rebellion. So God is going to bring an end to the revolt or to the rebellion against God's authority and against God's covenant. Israel, quite simply, has rebelled. They've revolted. And God is going to bring an end to that revolt. The most obvious meaning is that Israel's course of revolt, their course of apostasy and sin and wandering, will be brought to absolute completion within the 77s. So within that time frame, God is going to bring an end now to this transgression, to this revolt. The restoration of Israel, which Daniel sought in his prayer, will ultimately have its fulfillment. The day is coming when the Jews will no longer revolt and rebel against God. At Calvary, may I suggest, Jesus finished transgression. Jesus finished transgression. How can I say that? Because as he was dying, what words did he say? It is finished. The whole revolt and principle of revolt, now he's, this is specifically, it comes to the Jew first, doesn't it? Don't the Jews have first right of refusal? The cross provided the basis for the restraining of transgression or rebellion with the ultimate finishing of transgression, to be realized when Christ returns, which would be at the conclusion of the 490-year period, however we define that 490-year period. The second aspect of God's program is to put an end to sin. Now, this may be taken either in the sense of taking away sins or bringing sin to final judgment or some combination of those two themes. In any case, the national sin of Israel will come to an end. When might the national sin of Israel come to an end, do you suppose? When the 490 years are consummated at the second coming of Jesus Christ. The language in the Hebrew refers to this, this idea of uh, putting an end to sin, it, it refers to sin being missing the mark or the, the missing the true goal of life. The true goal of life is what? Live our life for God's glory, isn't it? And that's a constant theme of message uh, of the scriptures is, is trust in the Lord, honor Him, worship Him, serve Him, praise Him, acknowledge Him in all your ways. Uh, and, and so that's where constantly, our, our hearts are constantly wandering, aren't they? And we're, 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 that's why you stay in the scriptures. That's why you stay in church. That's why you stay in fellowship so that we're continually reminded uh, to stay in this process. And so we don't want to miss the mark. And the, the word literally implies not just uh, the same, it's not the same as transgression in the first segment. It, it, it really describes a, 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 an all-encompassing immorality uh, that affected all of the nation. This second achievement to put an end to sin suggests also uh, the bringing in of a new society in which righteousness will prevail, in complete contrast to the condition of Israel in what they were experiencing, and indeed to the present condition of mankind in general. And this would point to the kingly rule, I think it would point to the kingly rule of Jesus on earth, rather than this simple present earthly order that we understand now. So in other words, a day is coming. A day is coming when sin will no longer exist. Doesn't that sound exciting? You can hardly wait. A day is coming when sin will no longer exist. No longer will Israel, or no longer will believers in general, miss the mark. No longer Will we fall short of what we should be or what we should do? In Matthew chapter 1, is recorded in verse 21 this statement Jesus will save his people from their sins. So, all six aspects of of God's program, I think we look back from our vantage point. Remember, Daniel didn't have the New Testament. He didn't know about Jesus. He, he knew some vague prophecies about a Messiah coming, but he didn't understand the whole, whole complete uh, dynamic and picture of God's program. And so we look back and we see clearly, clearly, that all six aspects of this program are fulfilled by one single person. And that person is Buddha. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Who is that person? It's Jesus. See, there's no other name under heaven given to men by which they must be saved. It's Jesus who is going to uh, finish, and indeed he had on the cross, finished transgression. It just remains in time and space and history for that to be completed. It's Jesus who does away with all sin. In Hebrews chapter 9, we read again about Jesus. He will take away our sins. In Hebrews chapter 9, uh, the latter part of verse 26. But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with what? Sin by the sacrifice of himself. So clearly we see the fulfillment of this in the person of Jesus Christ. May I suggest to you the gospel These prophetic words of the angel Gabriel, he's speaking the gospel, isn't he? We have the gospel enunciated. The third aspect of God's program is to atone or make reconciliation for wickedness. To make reconciliation for wickedness. Most of us know the the term Yom Kippur, right? The Day of Atonement. That's the day when the Jews all come together and they, and they ask for forgiveness for their sins for the year. Well, the Hebrew word kippur is translated, that's the translation, that's the Hebrew word for the word, English word atone. And when it's used in relation to sin, that word means to cover, to cover sin, to wipe out sin, to make sin as harmless, non-existent, inoperative to annul it to withdraw from god's sight all of that but it also has the flip side with the idea this accompanying idea of reinstatement in his favor so our sin has been covered our sin has been wiped out by this atonement that is made and the accompanying idea is that there is reinstatement in god's favor freedom from sin, and restoring to holiness. That verb is regularly used in the Old Testament for the atonement made by blood sacrifices. And this announcement now has been made by Gabriel that God has found a way of forgiving sin without being untrue to his own righteousness. In other words, Daniel knows that there's no more sacrifices But he uses the word, Kippur, that Daniel would know, which referred directly to the sacrificial system. So Daniel's got to be going, how are we going to do this? God must have found a way. And God would not violate his own righteous standards and and do some shortcut. Are you with me? So it's important that that Daniel have this perspective. That's why I'm emphasizing this, this particular word. While the basic provision for reconciliation Uh, was made at the cross. The actual application of it, again, will be associated with the second coming of Jesus Christ, I believe, as far as Israel is concerned. Now, if you go to the prophet Zechariah and you read the prophet Zechariah, chapter 12, 13, 14, you read, basically, uh, when the the Messiah comes, uh, he says, they will look upon me as one that they have pierced. And they will mourn. So you get the clear idea that Jesus returned. Israel, the scales are going to fall off their eyes. They're going to go, whoa, it was him all along. How could we have done that? What were we thinking? What did we do? And they will mourn. And there will be a, presumably, mass conversion, if you will. But that, that, I believe, is going to happen at the second coming, when Jesus returns. But for us reconciliation is now a present reality the scales have fallen off our eyes haven't we we do see clearly today don't we why because of calvary it it, it just it it just it just all comes together we see much more clearly now than than we did before we were believers listen to what the apostle paul tells us second corinthians chapter 5 verse 19 god was reconciling the world He was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. How many say hallelujah to that? I mean, that just has to take your breath away. Here, God is in Christ, reconciling reconciling the world to himself. God is doing this. It's not us reconciling ourselves to God. And how, how do we realize this reconciliation? How do you and I realize it? How do we appropriate it? By faith. We do it by faith. We believe. You say, well, you know, it's uh, just, it's just hard to believe. You have to come by faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Jesus says, come as a little child with simple, naive faith. Just believe. And guess what? The faith with which you believe, that faith is also a gift from God. If you go back to Ephesians chapter 2, he talks about this, this salvation is by grace through faith. And he says, and the faith itself, that too is a gift of God. So he, is, he has caused us to actually be able to believe. He's given us the faith. Now the question is, will I exercise that? Will I believe? Are you with me on this? So how How then is this... this this great work that he's done, how is this, this uh, 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 doing away with sin? and recon- How is all this to be appropriated? It's appropriate by faith. I believe it. I believe that I'm right with God. I believe that God has made me right with him. It's not based on anything I could do. It's simply because God has made me right with him. I trust him. And when I embrace his faith, his faith so impacts my life that I want more of it. What does Peter say? Taste. Taste and see how good the Lord is. Let, let him whet your appetite. And as you do so, you only want more. I mean, once you've experienced grace from somebody, don't you want more of it? You kind of buzz around that person like a little honeybee around the, around the thigh the hoping to get more. That's the principle. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 17 tells us that he, meaning Jesus, might make atonement for the sins of the people. It's Jesus that makes atonement. Now I know that a lot of this is very, very familiar, but I, I want you to see and understand the relationship here between God and Israel and what Jesus does in the timetable. It is his shed blood that covers our sins. It's his shed blood that reconciles us to God today. But for Israel, I suggest it will be when Jesus appears a second time. They're waiting. Paul says in in Romans 9, 10, 11, he talks about a partial hardening happening to the Jews. And for the sake of the Gentiles, so, if I can use this phrase, it's almost like as if God has taken Israel and put them on the back burner for the time being and brought the Gentiles to the forefront until the fullness of the Gentiles, and then He's going to deal with Israel and bring them back to the forefront. The fourth aspect of God's program is to bring in everlasting righteousness. Now, with sin done away by those first three. Aspects, sin is done away with. Now God promises to bring in everlasting righteousness. At the end of God's timetable, righteousness will flood the earth, and it will continue to do so throughout all eternity. Everything is going to be right. We're going to be right. We're going to be rightly related. Finally, we're going to get along. Somebody say hallelujah. (laughs) I mean, it's a battle now, isn't it? Just a stay in right relationship. But oh man, when righteousness floods the world, floods it for all eternity. What a wonderful promise to Daniel. Because here's Daniel, he's concerned with all that's wrong. He's concerned with all the sin and the separation of the people from God and the destruction. Not only would God bring an end to rebellion, Not only would God put an end to sin, not only would God make atonement for wickedness, but a day was coming when his people would live in a world of righteousness. A day when they would no longer be oppressed. A day when they would no longer be enslaved. A day when they would no longer be mistreated. And they themselves would live righteously before the Lord, and righteousness would flood the world. This was God's original intent. His original intent was to work in and through the people of Israel to bring the light of righteousness into this world. Now, God ultimately did in Christ. But Israel lost its testimony. The fifth part of God's plan is to seal up vision and prophecy. To seal up vision and prophecy. Now, to seal a document would involve a number of things. It would involve closing the document. You know, we seal an envelope, we close it, right? We mail an envelope. For those of you that have computers, I don't know what you do, but I don't know how you seal that stuff. You send, I guess, huh? Is that what you do? I don't know. But but there's another, another meaning also. To seal a document means to authenticate it. So you would authenticate the document with a seal, your personal seal in the ancient Near East. They had wax seals. Or they would sign it. Now, you and I authenticate a document by signing. We put our signature on the bottom line. So we authenticate it. Now, the, the idea of authenticate, the idea of sealing up vision and prophecy means very simply this that God is going to fulfill all his prophecies and all the visions. At the end, he's going to fulfill every vision and every prophecy. You read these already, you read this phrase again and again and again in the New Testament. Something like this, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets. Does that sound vaguely familiar? You read it throughout the New Testament. Uh, Let me give you a couple examples from Matthew's gospel. Matthew chapter 2, verse 15, verse 17, verse 23. Just here's three examples from Matthew. Now this is a reference to his escape to Egypt as an infant to protect him from Herod. Verse 15 says, where he stayed in Egypt until the death of Herod, and so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet out of Egypt I called my son. So again, here's a fulfilled prophecy. Now there's There's hundreds of these prophecies. In fact, the whole Old Testament, when you read it and you're looking for Jesus, the whole Old Testament, all the law and prophets speak about Jesus and speak about his his work. And so the whole Old Testament, all the prophecies, all the visions are going to be fulfilled. Look at verse uh, 17. This is a reference again to the slaughter of the infants in Bethlehem, which Jesus escaped. He said, then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. And then he has the prophecy about the, uh, the voices weeping and mourning in uh, Ramah. Verse 23. And he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. He will be called a Nazarene. So again, you you have these statements that he he was fulfilling all along in his earthly life. In John chapter 5, verse 39, another example. Jesus himself said, these are the scriptures that testify about me. Now what scriptures is he talking about? He's talking about the Old Testament. In Acts chapter 3, verse 18, here's Peter Peter says, but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Christ would suffer. The point being, all will be fulfilled. All will be fulfilled. In other words, all vision, all prophecy will finally be sealed. It will be authenticated. Daniel's prophecy here will be authenticated it will be vindicated all the things that Gabriel says to Daniel are going to be seen and they're going to happen God has decreed it It am I making sense the sixth part of God's plan is to anoint the most holy now this is the most ambiguous of all of these elements the phrase most holy can refer to a place or a person. Now, you and I would maybe, at least me, I I would naturally uh, gravitate towards most holy, referring to the person of Jesus Christ. Interestingly, most of the commentators uh, take a different position. Most of the commentators uh, would suggest that it is a reference uh, to... a a temple to be built in the millennium. Now, again, there's different schools of thought. Is there going to be a thousand-year reign? Is there a millennium? Is there not going to be a millennium? Uh, Are we in the millennium now? I mean, there's there's some crazy thinking out there. But assuming there will be a thousand-year reign or a millennial reign of Christ, uh, Ezekiel, in chapter 40 through 44, seems to indicate that there will be a temple in Jerusalem, a new Jerusalem, during the millennium. And a lot of the commentators think to anoint the most holy means to anoint that most holy place in that temple, the Holy of Holies, in that millennial temple. I don't know. That, that requires more study. There's another school of thought that believes that this most holy would refer to um, not a millennial temple, but to the new spiritual temple. The new spiritual temple would be called the New Testament church. And you see this as the dwelling place of God, Revelation chapter 21, first three verses. So it could be a, could be a, a, a temple in the millennium in Jerusalem. It could be a reference to the the, uh, uh, the church as the dwelling place of God with men. Or it could, in fact, refer to the anointing of Jesus himself. Um, And the anointing of Jesus is seen in a number of ways. When the kings of of Israel uh, would be um, inaugurated, they would always be anointed by the priests. And the priests would come and they would pour pour oil over their heads, anointing them. Now Jesus is called the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So as they were anointed to rule, Jesus would logically be anointed to rule. He'd be anointed by the Holy Spirit because the oil pictured the anointing of the Holy Spirit. He was uh, ostensibly anointed by the Holy Spirit uh, when he came up out of the water after his baptism, remember? When, when When the dove descended upon him and the voice from heaven said, this is my son, and so forth and so forth. So we see that. Jesus, in fact, did speak of the temple of his own body, did he not? And he pointed, he pointed to his own body, and, and, it, and all, his, all the people were thinking he was talking about the temple. He says, he says, destroy this temple, and I'll raise it up in three days. So He's talking about his own body. So could he be refer, referencing himself as the most holy? And then, of course, we see in Mark's gospel, the woman who brings the expensive jar of perfume and anoints him with that perfume. And there's a big hubbub, you know. "Ah, What a waste of money. We've got to sell the perfume and feed the poor. Right. (laughs) So the point I want to make is the anointing of the Most Holy, this is the most ambiguous of all of these six aspects, and we, we can't say conclusively which it is. I would prefer personally to interpret it as Jesus himself, but there are other opinions. So, The bottom line is, in revealing this six-fold plan for Israel, this is how Daniel is meant to take it. This is for Israel. And God, in revealing this six-fold plan, God answers, in effect, Daniel's fervent prayer. God, forgive your people. Restore your people. And God's saying, all right, I'm going to forgive them, and I'm really going to restore them. And this is how I'm going to do it. In the 77s. And the Jews who truly trusted in the Lord would, be, would, would begin to be and, and understand the forgiveness of their sins through the atoning death of Jesus Christ. Indeed, the early church was composed primarily of Jews. And then when the Jews began to turn away wholesale from the gospel, then the gospel went to the Gentiles. And they would be reconciled to God. They would live in a perfect society of righteousness, peace, security, prosperity, and justice and the very promise and presence of God would dwell with his people. God told Daniel that he had a wonderful plan for Israel, the prophet's own dear people. This is what God is telling Daniel. God's plan for Israel would also include the Gentiles. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. I would suggest that's inclusive of the Gentiles, wouldn't you? In Romans chapter 3, Paul says this, But now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has nothing to do with obeying the rules. A righteousness from God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. that phrase law and prophets is simply another reference to the whole old testament so he's saying the whole old testament testifies to this righteousness that god is bringing that god is providing that god is giving he says in this righteousness from god comes through faith in who in jesus christ now notice this to all who believe not only to the jews but to the gentiles He says, there's no difference, for all have sinned and fall short. Whether you're a Jew or Gentile, you've sinned, you've fallen short. But this passage includes also the Gentiles. There's no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. In Ephesians chapter 2, you see the same theme played out. Paul talks about those Gentiles who were who are at one time far away, and now they have been brought near, and they've been brought near through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. In verses 24 through 27 of Daniel chapter 9, Gabriel is describing the enlargement of Jeremiah's prophecy. This didn't cancel out Jeremiah's prophecy of the 70-year exile and return of the Jews to Jerusalem, but Gabriel's word gave Daniel I think a needed reminder that God had even greater plans, much more expansive plans, than simply bringing the Jews across the desert and rebuilding Jerusalem. Sometimes our prayers in our life get very myopic, don't they? We get very limited. It's just all about us. And God wants us to draw back and to get a, a, a larger picture He wants us to have insight and understanding into his purpose, his plans, so that you and I could say, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. It's not just about me, God. I want your will. Reveal to me your will. Show me how I fit into your program. This is the the purpose so that we would see. Daniel is absorbed in his prayer for the Jews, and that's not a bad thing. But it, it just exhibits his own human limited, limitations. That's what he sees. And God says, let me, let me, let me blow your mind. Let me, let me give you the big picture, Daniel. And every so often, God comes along and gives us the big picture, doesn't he, for our lives. We go, wow, wow, it's not just about me. God, I want to serve you. I want to be part of what you're doing in this life and in this world. The language of verse 24 that we just looked at seems, I believe, to describe the ultimate consummation of Israel's history in an event of cosmic significance. And it it will involve the coming of a Messiah and the destiny of all nations. So everything, everything that's going to happen around Israel, the consummation of their history, will involve the coming Messiah and it will involve the absolute destiny of all nations on the face of the earth. Somehow God has made Israel integral to his great purpose. You see that happening in Isaiah's prophecies, more particularly Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah chapter 11. You see it in Jeremiah chapter 31. We read that passage before. You see it in in the prophet Micah in chapter 4. I want to suggest to you that in this passage we see revealed the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Do we not? We see the gospel in this passage. Our eyes look back and we say, wow, okay. The, the, the finishing of transgression, the, the, the doing away with sin, wickedness, bringing in everlasting righteousness. How does all that happen? Where does all that happen? When, how? Through Jesus. You see the gospel. I want to suggest to you that this passage in Daniel is a Christ-saturated passage. It is a gospel-saturated passage. See, it's about the gospel. It's about the good news. This is what Gabriel is telling Daniel. I have good news, and the good news is just not for this present day. This good news is expansive for all eternity. Let it take your breath away. As we continue to look through these 70 weeks, and see more clearly part of what God is doing. We already understand the fulfillment, don't we? But it's just kind of fun to look at it, isn't it? Father, thank you. Thank you again that your plan, your purpose is sure and certain. And as we read these passages, we, can't, we cannot, just, just cannot not see that all these events refer to what happened during the life and death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. Lord, open our eyes to the good news, to the gospel, that we can indeed participate with you in what you're doing in this world. Lord, help us to see that it's not just about us, not just about our own wants and desires, but rather about your will being done. Father, we love you today, and we thank you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen, church? Amen. Amen. Take a moment and share one thing with your neighbor that meant something to you this morning, one thing that you got, and then pronounce a blessing on your neighbor if you would. And if it's appropriate, only if it's appropriate, give your neighbor a holy hug and very possibly a holy kiss. And let's stand together and sing his praises before we dismiss.